Hello, hello. Welcome or welcome back to the TCC podcast, True Crime Chronicles, episode 8 of Mystery Monday. I am Lindsay. Be sure to follow me so you don't miss an episode. Share, comment, like, leave a rating, all that fun stuff. I'm just starting out so it would help me a ton and I would greatly appreciate it. So today's case has been in the news very recently, and I'm talking about Alicia Navarro. Now, Alicia ran away from home in Glendale, Arizona in September of 2019 and reappeared in Haver, Montana in July of this year. Now, this got the attention of the entire country, and I think you know, everybody was just really kind of captivated by this for a couple reasons. A, it had a happy ending, right? And it had a happy ending in a scenario that so rarely has one. You know, and B, honestly, everybody was curious. Why did she run away? Did she leave to meet with someone? How did a 14-year-old get to Montana from Arizona, right? And why did she turn herself in? What happens next? I mean, it just captivated everyone, especially the people who had been invested in her disappearance from the beginning. So in today's episode, we're going to go over the details of her disappearance and everything we know so far about her reappearance. So sit back, dig in, let's get started. I ran away. I will be back. I swear. I'm sorry. Alicia. Those have got to be the worst words in the world for a parent to read. But that is exactly what Jessica Nunez read on a note left by her 14-year-old daughter on September 15th of 2019. She found the note in her daughter, Alicia Navarro's bedroom in their Glendale, Arizona home. Now, when Jessica had gotten up that morning, she realized that the back door was slightly open. So Jessica goes to inspect the door a bit further to see if it had been broken into, had it just been left open, you know, that sort of thing. Like, why is this door open? Now, I don't know how often they used that door or if it was a regularly used entrance or something that was barely used, but Jessica went to check it out. Now, doing this, she was able to get a good view of their backyard, and what she saw sent her into a panic, as it would any parent. Jessica was looking at bricks and chairs stacked up against a wall in the backyard. They had been used to climb over it, no doubt by Alicia, sometime in the early morning hours. Now, panicked, Jessica runs to her daughter's room, where she finds a note that Alicia had left for her mom. Now, that was the start of the worst four years for Jessica and a massive campaign to find her daughter. So, what had happened? And why? Why had Alicia left 
and with who? Jessica had no answers to these questions and so many more just running through her head. The only answer she did have and knew for certain was that her daughter was gone. Alicia had run away. So to understand how we got to this point in Alicia's story, we need to start at the beginning and get a better understanding of who Alicia was at that time in her life, her relationships, interests, and what would cause her to leave her home and her family and everything that was familiar to her and comfortable. Alicia Navarro was born September 20th, 2004 in Glendale, Arizona to Mother Jessica Nunez. Now, I don't have any information on Alicia's biological father, if he is around, if he ever has been around, I'm not sure. But Jessica was married to Alicia's stepfather, Ivan, and together they had two children, a daughter and a son. And by all accounts, Alicia seemed to love her mother and family and had good relationships with them. Even with what appeared to be a happy home life, Alicia had daily struggles that were a challenge for her to deal with. Alicia was on the autism spectrum and was considered very high functioning. From a very young age, she exhibited advanced sensory abilities. She learned to tie her shoes and do laundry, but she was also very adept with electronics and good for her because I am technology stupid. My kids are constantly having to show me how to use stuff, right? I had my kids very young and they're, you know, adults now and I have to ask them to show me how to use stuff. They just roll their eyes like, are you kidding? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I cannot figure it out. So I admire someone who can navigate technology very well. And that was Alicia. She loved to spend her time gaming or online socializing. She would play games such as Minecraft, Discord, and Roadblocks. She also would talk online with other players, and we will come back to this part in a little bit. It was easier for Alicia to make friends online than it was for her to socialize in person, which is attributed to her autism. Now, with an autism diagnosis came several challenges for Alicia. Besides the social aspect we just discussed, Alicia suffered from pretty severe anxiety. And the need for a structured schedule and comfort through repetition, Alicia needed that. And according to Jessica, Alicia would only wear a specific white sweatshirt and it was always the same one even in the triple digit weather that Arizona is known for in that area now it didn't matter the temp outside Alicia needed the long sleeves for whatever reason the long sleeves were a comfort to her and she would eat McDonald's chicken nuggets every day if she could she also suffered from an autoimmune disorder, but I don't know exactly which one. 
But mom Jessica was there to help Alicia. Besides taking daily medications, her mom hired a behavior coach in 2017 to help with challenges that Alicia faced being in a school environment and the severe anxiety that sometimes would come with it. So we actually had a behavior coach for my son during school also. She would go to school with him. Um, So I do kind of understand, you know, where Alicia's mom was coming from. I do have a very high-functioning son, but the anxiety um, that they feel sometimes, it just is debilitating. And if their routine is disrupted, I mean, it is just, it's a panic for them. And so it's I definitely understand trying to keep, you know, her comfort level with things, you know, steady. And, and even if that meant wearing the same shirt in, you know, triple digits every day. As long as she was inside where she wasn't going to overheat, you know, and hurt herself. Now, in addition to her online friends... Alicia did have a small group of childhood friends, and she was overall known to be just a very sweet and loving person. But despite all of the support that Alicia received, sometimes anxiety would just win the day, especially if her routine was disrupted. But in the months before Alicia went missing, she had begun to show interest in things outside of her typical wheelhouse. She was acting differently and exhibiting behavior not typical of her norm and asking for things very much outside of her age range. Some things, you know, weren't too bad. Alicia developed a new interest in comic books, okay, You know, she was listening to new music. She was now wanting to listen to classic rock bands like Pink Floyd. And I'm going to step in and say, phenomenal taste, Alicia. Because if you don't like Pink Floyd, I don't care what generation you are, I might side-eye just a touch. (laughs) Now, her parents didn't listen to this type of music, so... They assumed that this change was a result of one of her school peers introducing it to her. She was also asking for protein powders and other fitness type supplements. She was asking to go out more and meet friends out at places. So that's, you know, not too bad. Some of that maybe you could attribute to her sort of coming out of her shell, right? And maybe if this you know, where someone not on the spectrum, I could see where maybe you could just kind of chalk it up to that and, you know, call it a day, you know, kind of feel a little better. They're sort of coming into their self, coming out of their shell. But a child, you know, on a spectrum, you definitely want them, yes, to do different things and to try to expand. But I would be very nervous if all of a sudden, you know, my autistic son made big drastic changes like this. And some of the other changes, they weren't, you know, as just kind of innocent as new music or comic books. They were a bit more concerning to Jessica. 
Alicia was asking her mom for body spray, you know, cosmetics, certain types of makeup, which, you know, I think these are pretty typical things a 14, you know, almost 15-year-old girl would be interested in or ask for, but it was very out of character for Alicia. But probably the most, you know, concerning was the new clothes Alicia was asking for. And she wanted to try out a new look. But this new look kind of raised Jessica's eyebrows. She was asking for very adult, very provocative, very inappropriate clothing. But again, Jessica kind of chalked this up to peer pressure that Alyssa, Alicia could possibly have been getting at school. She was keeping an eye on it, but figured it was probably just a phase as teens go through 5,000 different phases and looks and interests. Alicia had started her freshman year at Borgrade Catholic High School. She was typically an honor roll student. She loved to read and was incredibly smart. Now, Alicia self-described, you know, herself as introverted, nerdy, different, weird, nervous. So high school had proved to be very overwhelming at times. And Alicia would ask to stay home for what my mom used to call mental health days, where you just need a day off, right? You stay home, you watch your soaps all day, you just sort of kick back, stay in bed, whatever you need to do to sort of regroup, right? And Jessica would allow Alicia to stay home when she needed to. So Friday, September 13th of 2019, Alicia was having one of those days and had asked to stay home. So Jessica, knowing school was a big and at times overwhelming change for Alicia, she agrees to let her stay home. Now, wanting to help and support her daughter, Jessica takes Alicia out for a mother-daughter type of day. They went and got their eyebrows threaded together. She bought Alicia a $200 comic book. Now, I don't know anything about comic books, but I do know certain ones, I guess, can be worth a lot of money at some point. And this particular comic book was an Iron Man comic book and that particular one was like demon in a bottle I think was the name so I I, just, I don't know man $200 for a fucking comic book I mean yeah if that's your thing you know I know they have like I said way more expensive comic books than that but that just seems like a lot to me for a book or like even not even really a book but like a comic book but she wanted it and, you know, her mom was happy to get it for her. They then went to a local chocolate factory that sounded awesome. And then they ended their mother-daughter day with chicken McNuggets from McDonald's. Jessica remembered it being a great day and said that Alicia seemed really happy. That night, Alicia stayed up playing video games and gaming online which was a pretty typical night for Alicia. But the next day, Saturday, September 14th, 
that was a little bit of a different vibe than the, you know, great day that they had had the day before. That Saturday, Alicia spent all day in her room. No interactions with friends and very minimal interacting with her family. Now, I mean, teenagers, they switch moods like they switch their underwear, right? So that could just be, you know, just moody stuff that happened. So I probably wouldn't have completely red flagged at that point either. But Alicia stays in her room, you know, the entire Saturday. And about 1 a.m. on Sunday morning, which takes us to the 15th of September, Alicia leaves her room to get a drink of water from the kitchen. Now, Jessica was still up waiting for her husband to get home. And she remembers Alicia being in a very happy mood. She stayed up and chatted with her mom for a bit. And Alicia asked her mother when she plans on going to bed. You know, she then returns to her room where her mother assumed she had went to sleep. When her husband got home, Jessica goes to her other child's room and falls asleep in there with them. And her husband falls asleep on the couch. Which, I I don't know if that's weird or not, is it? Or if that is like typical of their relationship, I don't know. But that was you know, Saturday night into Sunday morning. Now, later Sunday morning, about 7 a.m., Jessica gets up to make breakfast for her family. Everyone was up but Alicia. Now, this is when Jessica notices that the back door is slightly open. Jessica goes to the back door to see what's going on. And, you know, while she's back there, Jessica notices, you know, like lawn chairs, there was like some bricks stacked up against the wall at the back of the yard. So once you climbed over the wall, you would come out on the corner of Rose Lane and 45th Avenue. Now Jessica knew instantly Alicia had stacked the chairs to get over the wall. She runs to Alicia's room and her instinct was right. Alicia was gone. But she finds a note. I ran away. I will be back. I swear. I'm sorry, Alicia. So realizing Alicia is gone, the police are called immediately. And the search for Alicia begins. Now a search of her room is done. And right away, Jessica starts to notice some items are missing from her room. A small black backpack was missing. In addition to the comic book her mother had just purchased for her the day before yesterday, her iPhone 6, her MacBook, and the makeup and cosmetics that she had acquired in recent months, and her body spray. But the one thing, though, that she didn't take was her chargers for her electronics. So... I don't know if that means that she just was only planning on being gone very shortly or if she didn't plan on using these electronics at all. But if she was meeting someone, and I definitely think she was, they told her to bring those two items with her. So that way, you know, they couldn't go through them and see who she had been talking to, what plans she was making, 
and all of that kind of thing. That's more why I think she took them. And I think that's why she didn't bother to take the Chargers. But that's just my, you know, opinion. Now, further inspection of the lawn chairs by the brick wall in the back showed footprints in the mud that were the size of Alicia's feet and the type of Van's shoes that she wore. Police spoke with Alicia's friends, and what they had to say was confusing and honestly pretty scary. So two weeks prior, Jessica had dropped Alicia off at the mall to meet a couple of her male friends from school. Now, they were a bit older, but Jessica agreed to let her go to the mall for two hours and then, you know, pick her back up. Now, the boys spoke with investigators after her disappearance, and one of the boys, Jack, noticed that while they were at the mall, Alicia had a second cell phone, like a burner phone, in her backpack. Now, I don't know what led him to believe that this was a burner phone or a second phone, unless she mentioned it to him. But if it was in her backpack, like, how did he see it? How did he know that she had it? And how did he know that this was a second phone or a burner phone? I couldn't really find the answers to that, but I find it interesting that that was what he jumped to right away. So, I don't know. But this was also, like, double confusing to Jessica. Because, A, she hadn't ever known Alicia to have an extra phone. And, B, when she dropped her off at the mall, Alicia hadn't brought anything with her. Especially not a backpack. Now, I guess it's possible that she purchased it at the mall. I mean, I don't know if she had money to buy stuff or what she had planned on doing at the mall. Other than just maybe walking around with her friends. But it doesn't sound like she came home with the backpack either. So, I, I don't know. The only thing I could think of is maybe she did have it and mom just didn't see it. Or maybe Jack was mistaken. I, I don't know. That one I'm not sure. Now, 11 days before Alicia ran away, she messaged 20-year-old Clark Samples on Discord. Now, I've seen him referred to as a friend of Alicia's, but I have a pretty high level of uncomfortability referring to a 20-year-old as a friend of a 14-year-old. So, yeah. Now, he said that Alicia told him she had just sold her Xbox and that she had a boyfriend now. Clark lived in Salem, Oregon, and said he was just, you know, one part of a large group of online friends that included Alicia. Clark told the FBI that this online group of mutual friends, they would encourage and try to build up Alicia's confidence to help her make, you know, friends that were not online, right? On September 12th, 2019, Alicia would go to school like she normally did, come home and play Minecraft and text her friends. She messaged her friend Jack that evening, and according to Jack, Alicia told him that she was planning on running away, possibly to California. 
Now she asks him, did he want to come along with her? Jack tells her no and goes on about his night not really giving it another thought. At the time, this just kind of seemed unimportant. Jack said Alicia was known to often say outlandish things and he assumed she was just talking shit and he didn't take her seriously. Looking back now, yeah, okay, it should have maybe been a red flag. But honestly, when I was a teenager, I knew a ton of people who talked about running away all the time. And looking back, I don't think any of them did. Yeah, so I, I probably would not have taken it that seriously either. Plus, you know, Alicia, it seemed, had come from a good family. She had a good home life. She didn't like to be out too much. Didn't have a lot of friends. You know, she didn't have a job. So her talking about leaving, just it didn't seem in any way like a serious idea or a plan. Now, Jessica knew that Alicia spoke to people online. And that always caused her to worry. She knew her daughter was naive and socially inexperienced, and she just was not good at picking up social cues. So an example, right, would be on one occasion, Jessica had caught Alicia talking to a much older man, a grown man online. Jessica shut that shit down immediately. She went straight to the police to file a report. But the police told her they couldn't do anything because, I mean, technically, they hadn't done anything wrong. Now, my daughter did this. Um, I want to say she was maybe 12. And she was on a Facebook that I did not know she had. And she was trying to search someone that had her father's name. Now, at this point in her life, she had not met her father. And she didn't. I guess, understand how it works, so she just put in his name, and instead of getting someone in Florida, she found someone in Illinois, and it was a 20-year-old man, and, you know, my daughter gave him all this information, she was 12, she was looking for her dad, and, you know, he comes back with the real fucking grimy, oh, I'll be your daddy type shit, right? Well, my daughter didn't, clearly didn't catch on to that. And she's like, hey, I think I found my dad. Now, I, knowing she did not find her dad, was like, what are you talking about? So I look at this conversation, and I was horrified and terrified. I was like, oh, my gosh, I had to have a talk with my daughter, and I had to have a talk with Buddy on the other end of that conversation, and he didn't like it. So that was when I realized I really had to monitor she was at that age where I needed to be involved in what she was doing and Jessica you know was kind of doing the same thing she tried to explain to Alicia the danger in this situation and that this man was taking advantage of her you know not everyone has good intentions and it's really hard to a tell a teenager that but you know b to Explain to them that people aren't always what they are. They're very naive a lot of times. And these predators are incredibly convincing. 
Like it, they make it their mission, their job to be as convincing as possible. And some of them incredibly excel at it. And it's horrifying. Now, I don't know what happened after that incident or how Jessica monitored or tried to monitor who she was interacting with online, you know, from then on out. Or if she just trusted that after their talk, Alicia would use better judgment in who she interacted with. And the police pretty much tagged Alicia as a runaway and felt like she would be back soon, but she was going to come back on her own time. And Jessica, being her mother and knowing her daughter, completely disagreed with the police's assumption. Jessica was certain that her daughter had been groomed online by a predator and manipulated into leaving her home. She felt like her daughter had been told to bring her electronics, you know, to play games and then prevented her from leaving. Now, I think that they told her to bring the electronics so that there was no way to to track, you know, the stuff that they were doing. Now, he might have lied to her and said, yeah, well, you know, play games on them, but I definitely think there was an ulterior motive for her to bring the electronics. September 19th, a friend or someone who personally knew Alicia said they saw her at La Pradera Park. Now, this park was only about 1.5 miles from her home. Multiple other people actually saw Alicia at this park also and corroborated the friend's statement. And all of these people, they all said the same thing. Alicia was seen with an African-American man with tattoos on his face and neck and hands. He was said to have been holding on to Alicia's hand and leading her around the park. This was only four days after Alicia had left. Now, Jessica herself went down to the park to check this out. But she did not see her daughter there. This was the only credible and confirmed sighting of Alicia. But, I mean, what was she doing in the park for five days? I just, that confuses me quite a bit. So it's now September 20th, 2019. And this is Alicia's birthday. Now, according to Jessica, Alicia had been looking forward to that day. She had requested steak for dinner and red velvet cake. Police attempted to ping her cell phone or the laptop, but it appeared that they both had been turned off. Now, the FBI got involved pretty early on, and at this time, investigators, they no longer thought that she was a runaway and agreed with Jessica's theory of grooming by an online predator. Now, unfortunately... There is not another sighting of Alicia or credible leads, and her case very quickly goes cold. Very shortly after Alicia disappears, just a few months later, COVID-19 hits the world with a vengeance, which causes a twofold concern. Concern number one, Alicia had an autoimmune disorder, and her mother was terrified for her daughter's safety. Now, number two, masks were now mandatory, right? You had to wear them. 
which made it very difficult to recognize people. So in January of 2020, Homeland Security and the Arizona Attorney General's Office partnered up with investigators for an operation targeting people involved in human trafficking. Now, of the 27 people that law enforcement arrested, they singled out one. And this was the one man who fit the description of the man from the park. But, I mean, nothing came from that arrest that helped to find Alicia. Alicia, though, she was the first juvenile to have a silver alert issued for her disappearance. And that's a big deal, right? A silver alert is most commonly used for elderly people who are missing, you know, or considered endangered, right? But they can also be issued for a missing person if they have certain conditions that make them particularly vulnerable, which Alicia did. Now, I've seen where the silver alert was issued on July 1st of 2020, and then I saw where it was issued literally the very next day. And I am 100%, I'm not 100% for sure which one it is. Like, I, I really don't know. I couldn't verify it completely, but from what I did see from my research, I'm more apt to say that it was issued on the July 1st date. Now, as time went on, the case that was cold became frozen. But Jessica couldn't just sit around and wait for something to happen. She hit the pavement, and I mean she hit it hard. She was relentless in her search for her daughter. If she wasn't out searching, she was handing out flyers or putting flyers on poles or up in store windows. She would use social media platforms to spread awareness of Alicia's disappearance. She would do interviews, right? She would go on TV. And one thing that Jessica also did, she used her platform to educate and warn other families of the dangers that lurk on the internet for children. Jessica was convinced, and I mean, you could not tell her different, that an internet predator had groomed her daughter and lured her away from the safety of her home and family. She didn't want another family to go through what she had been going through since September 15th of 2019. She always believed the promise, though, that Alicia had made to her in her note, and that is that she would be back. But weeks turned to months, which turned to years, with no sight or sound from her daughter. That is, until July 23rd of 2023, when a very timid, very small, and very young-looking girl walks into a tiny police station in Montana, about 40 miles from the Canadian border, and about 1,000 miles away from Glendale, Arizona. And this girl asks to be taken off of the missing persons list. Alicia Navarro had walked into the Haver, Montana Police Department, no longer a 14-year-old runaway, but an 18-year-old adult. She identified herself 
and asked to be taken off of the missing persons list. Law enforcement called authorities in Glendale, Arizona to confirm Alicia's identity. You know, absolutely stunned investigators confirmed through FaceTime that, yes, that was in fact missing teenager Alicia Navarro. Can you imagine like the absolute shock, not only, you know, to law enforcement, but to Jessica, who for the last four years had centered her life around looking for her daughter. Now, she did speak briefly with her mother via FaceTime also. Once she had been reunited with her mother and confirmed her identity, a whole new investigation began. The police said that they considered Alicia a victim and a person they needed to provide services to. So they assured her that she was not in trouble and asked her if she was okay. Was she injured? Did she need medical help? And Alicia very definitively said no. You know, no one hurt me. Law enforcement said, you know, they put out a statement that she is by all accounts safe, she is by all accounts healthy, and she is by all accounts happy. She was not being held against her will, and she could come and go as she wanted. Now, when interviewed by investigators, Alicia told them that her disappearance started out as a runaway situation, and that she did feel very bad about what she had put her mom through. When asked why she decided to you know, come in to law enforcement now, she said she just wanted to be able to move on with her life as an adult, but mainly because she wanted to be able to get a driver's license. And as long as she was a missing person, she wasn't able to do that. Now, as you can imagine, piecing together Alicia's movements the past four years was a bit of an overwhelming task. You know, her case was not a typical runaway, you know, slash missing persons case. Now, Trent Steele is the president and national director of investigations for the Anti-Predator Project. Now, when asked about Alicia's case, he responded, This is hands down one of the most bizarre and complex cases I've ever been a part of. We are currently in the process of figuring out what it was that happened September 15th of 2019 and what was Alicia and the gentleman she was with doing the past four years. How did they meet? How did Alicia end up in a small apartment in a town 1,000 miles away living with a 36-year-old man named Eddie Davis? Now, Steele says there is still so much more work that needs to be done in order to piece all of this together. Trent Steele commented on some of the challenges that a case like this can present. Now, he said that one of the biggest challenges is trying to go back and to try to figure out the technology from back in 2014, the time when she disappeared. You know, then, once we have that information, try and figure out what laws, if any, were broken. 
He said that they are piecing together years of a person's life and that just can't be done overnight. Now, Trent also said that both himself and the Glendale Police Department have received thousands of tips and are in the process of sifting through all of them. Knowing what we now know, it's made it a little easier to go through those thousands of tips that have been collected the past few years and filter out the ones we think have potential. Now, my question is, why are they just now going through and filtering tips that they received over the last few years to see if any of them have potential or are viable? I don't know if maybe I took that the wrong way, but I just feel like maybe you could have looked at them before now. I don't know. Maybe he meant to like re-go over the tips or like re-look at them. I don't know. Now, shortly after Alicia showed up at the police department, a man was brought in for questioning, but he was not held or arrested. Alicia left the police station with this man, and in addition to the man they interviewed, three other people were interviewed as well. And the identity of the man was not released by police, but we now know him to be 36-year-old Eddie Davis. Glendale spokeswoman Gina Wynn said authorities are still determining if a crime occurred. So right now, the investigation into Alicia's disappearance, it's ongoing and far from being complete. But Gina Wynn did add to please remember that Alicia is an adult now, and it is up to her whether she chooses to remain in Montana, return to Arizona, or literally go anywhere else she wants to. Now, police do not have anyone in custody or detained, and no arrests in this case have been made. Now, Alicia had been living in a small apartment in Haver, Montana, when she went into the police department in July of 2023 with 36-year-old Eddie Davis. Now, we don't have information about how long they had been living together, how they met, you know, or any of that information. I mean, we don't know the nature of their relationship at all. And we're not really sure how long they had been at that specific apartment. Now, according to a neighbor, and he was one of the four people that police questioned, they had lived there for at least a year because that's how long that he had lived there. Now, a search warrant was served on their apartment, which led to the temporary detainment of Eddie and the interviewing of the other three people. Now, they haven't released what was found or collected during the course of the search, but Alicia was seen, you know, kind of crying and hanging her head and just looking miserable. I mean, she kind of stayed looking down at the ground. I imagine it was probably very scary for her and very overwhelming. Now, we don't know what was said during the interrogation of Eddie Davis and the other three individuals that were questioned. But one neighbor, one neighbor loves to talk a lot. Like he will tell you anything and everything that he notices about this couple. 
And that is 22-year-old Garrett Smith. Now, he did speak with several different media outlets about his interaction with the couple over the past year that Garrett was their neighbor. He also shed some light on how Alicia and Eddie interacted together. According to Garrett, the day before Alicia turned up at the police department, he heard his neighbors having a very loud verbal row with each other. And during this disagreement, he allegedly heard her yell, I will go back. But he says that is literally all he heard of that argument is that one line. Now, Garrett had just spoken to Alicia for the first time a few days before she went to the Haver Police Department. And it was just a very quick interaction. She was asking directions to 6th Street. Alicia told him she had been walking with her uncle, and she was by a post office, and had gotten separated from him, and now she's lost. So Garrett said he found out later she was referring to Eddie as her uncle. Garrett also spoke very briefly with Eddie Davis as well. Now, Eddie, in a very, you know, small talk type of way, asked Garrett if he was from the area. Now, maybe it was small talk. Maybe he was just trying to inquire, you know, maybe a little paranoia creeped in, you know, or it was just a neighbor asking a new neighbor that moved in, right? But Eddie asked Garrett if he was from the area. And Garrett responded that, no, he was not a local resident. He was originally from Arizona. Now, upon hearing this, Garrett said that Eddie became very quiet. He became pale and stone-faced, and they never spoke again. Yeah, I'm sure... You know, hearing that, Eddie probably just wanted to shit. But, you know, Arizona's a big state. A lot of people are from there. I don't know what the odds are or what the population in Haver is that used to live in Arizona. But, yeah. So Garrett mentioned that he did see them holding hands one time, which was, you know, he was slightly taken aback by. He said she looked much younger than Eddie and... He hadn't really put them together in a relationship. He had sort of pegged it as family related somehow. You know, uncle, niece, that type of thing. And Garrett wasn't the only one who was unsure about Eddie and Alicia's relationship. But before we get too far into that, let's just pause for a second and talk about who Eddie Davis actually is in relation to this case. Now, Eddie Davis is a 36-year-old man. He worked the midnight shift at a local Walmart for several years. Now, a co-worker who was speaking anonymously said that Eddie was often seen driving with a woman. And I do say woman only in quote because she was a teenage kid during this time. And the co-workers could tell that it was a much younger person in the car, you know, than Eddie. It was a female with dark hair. Now, this person said that the female in the car, she looked comfortable with Eddie. 
She never appeared to be scared or abused or anything but, you know, where she wanted to be. And Eddie would refer to Alicia at work as his niece. Now, another anonymous Walmart co-worker, they also recalled several instances where another co-worker invited Eddie to go, you know, with a group of them out to a bar. It's just a group of co-workers out to kind of chill. And they encouraged him to bring his girlfriend if he wanted to. But Eddie jumped in and quickly denied that Alicia was not his girlfriend. Instead, he was claiming her to be a younger relative. Now, he replied to the co-worker saying it was his niece, not his girlfriend. And either way, she was too young to go to a bar. Now, when the news broke about the real nature of Eddie and Alicia's relationship, his co-workers talked about how well he hid his relationship with her using the cover of her being his niece, and they believed that. But once the news broke, Eddie very quickly lost his job, and there were, were several reasons as to why he was fired, and that was spoken about by a co-worker. You know, it was alluded to that this had been a long time coming. According to a radio station in New York City, Z100, a former co-worker of Eddie's said that Eddie was not known for his professionalism at work. And that over the past two years, co-workers noticed a drastic change in his demeanor. And that was, you know, at work. They didn't really socialize outside of work. He had been employed at least at least five years at that Walmart location. And co-workers said Eddie became very angry, very aggressive at work. He would call the younger staff members, the male staff members, he would call them names and yell insults at them for no reason. Now, the co-worker did not give the specific names or insults that Eddie would use or, you know, any examples of the angry comments. He said he wasn't authorized to speak to the press, so he just left it at he was being very aggressive at work. And unfortunately, this behavior led to Eddie being fired. A Walmart employee recalled overhearing another coworker say that Eddie had more recently worked at a local marijuana dispensary, but said that he lost that job also. So unemployed and under a microscope, Eddie and Alicia fled their apartment. They had lived in for at least the last year, following a July 26th FBI raid of their house. You know, that saw Eddie taken away in handcuffs, but was later released. On Tuesday, August 1st, Eddie and Alicia very quickly packed up their belongings and they fled their Haver apartment. Now, neighbor Garrett 
said that Eddie's family helped the pair clean out the apartment. Eddie and Alicia left the apartment in a dark-colored Mitsubishi Eclipse, while family members finished up packing and moving boxes into a 2000-something Chevy Suburban. Alicia opened her own car door. She sat in the car while Eddie's family was finishing up the packing. Garrett said Alicia's demeanor didn't look any different from the last time that he saw her. She appeared quiet and shy. She didn't say a word. She didn't look down or up. She just kind of looked straight ahead. Now, Garrett did say that he notified officials that they were moving. I'm not surprised by that. He really seems to like being in the mix of everything. But, you know, telling law enforcement didn't really matter. The 36-year-old boyfriend of now 18-year-old Alicia was not accused of any wrongdoing. Officials confirmed that there is no evidence suggesting that he was involved in her initial disappearance. So they can go, you know, or move wherever they want to. But where were they going? Well, pictures captured by major media outlets showed Alicia and Eddie moving into his mother's trailer on the Fort Belknap Reservation. Now, once this news got out, it sparked a flood of commentary from concerned community members and really just people nationwide. Living in Eddie's mother's trailer, the couple now live on a reservation of 35,000 people and a reservation that, according to some, is completely lawless. Now, the reservation is home to two different Native American tribes and is located about 40 miles south of the Canadian border by the Missouri River. Now, Connie, I'm not quite sure how to say her last name. If it's Philistine, I think. Well, Connie is a tribal member who lives on the reservation. And she says that the reservation has high incidences of substance abuse, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and just a lot of intergenerational traumas with abuse in general. And Connie definitely has reasons to feel this way. The reservation has seen a slate of arrests in recent years, from violence to drug and sex crimes to nine sex offenders, you know, that are in the public sex offender registry that live currently on that reservation. Now, Connie did add that the reservation has a lot of, you know, positives as well. It's not all bad, but someone as vulnerable as Alicia, who looks so much younger than she is, you know, that has people on the reservation, concerned for her safety. Now, she is very young looking, right? But that's not something that she can help. So, you know, is she going to spend her whole life not going places because she looks younger? I don't know. I, 
I don't know. I understand what she's saying and that it could maybe trigger, right, one of the sex offenders. But it's not just a reservation where sex offenders live. So, but I understand the safety concern. Now, among the crimes that took place on the territory, that includes two residents that were sentenced to 22 years each for the sexual abuse of a girl under 12 years of age. Now, that was in 2019. In February 22nd, a man was sentenced to six years for shooting up a house on the reservation. I don't know if they're talking like drive-by style or if they were arguing and he just pulled out a gun and started shooting. I don't know exactly the nature of shooting up the house is, but he did it. And also, in 2022, another Montana resident was given a six-year sentence for trafficking meth onto the reservation. Now, another tribe member, Cheryl Horn, said a lot of people on the reservation are disgusted by Eddie Davis and his new residency on the reservation with Alicia. Cheryl says, just because he's here does not mean we want him here. His family is supporting him, but all the rest of the community, we are not wanting this. Now, the people on the reservation are reportedly trying to drive Davis off the property. Cheryl continued saying, We have our own domestic violence. We have our own murders. We have our own missing and murdered indigenous women. We have enough unsolved things here. The tribes are also upset about the reservation making national headlines for allowing Eddie Davis to stay there. Now, another tribal member suggests, you know, having a certified advocate to sit with Alicia and speak with her while Davis is not present around her. And that the men were actively trying to get Davis off the reservation. Now, I 100% think there should be an advocate, a therapist, someone to sit with Alicia and speak to her. Try to find out what happened and if she is dealing with trauma or a Stockholm situation. You know, something just to make sure she understands her situation. Now, Warren Morin is a Fort Belknap Indian Community Council member. And he admitted that, yes, crime is likely higher on the reservation than other areas. But he was quick to point out the reason why, which is the lack of federal funding required to beef up their law enforcement on the reservation. Crime is bad here like it is most anywhere. But I do think the crime level here meaning the reservation, is a little bit higher. Morin went on to say, it's difficult to attract and retain police officers and prosecutors, especially with no funding. And yeah, I mean, if you don't have funding and you can't pay a decent wage, 
you know, the quality of people that you get applying for those jobs is, is not going to be nearly as good. Now, the Montana Reservation filed a lawsuit against the federal government in October after $5.3 million funding request was denied. Now, that number would have been a $3.8 million increase, and that would have allowed more than 1,000 square miles of the reservation to have additional police or legal coverage. Now, the reservation has its own law enforcement officials who can only prosecute other tribal members. But the FBI will send in federal agents to assist with the more serious crimes like murder, kidnapping, and some sex crimes. Now, according to Morin, the lack of funding from the federal government it makes the Native Americans feel forgotten by their country, right? And forgotten by their government. But, you know, Morin continued, as bad as it sounds, you know, this is a beautiful place and I love the vast landscapes that my home offers. And the people on the reservation, we love it here. I love the people. Now the people might not have any money, but they're rich in personality and we are rich in our land because it's a beautiful place to be. And that's amazing. I love this. I think that's beautiful. I love to hear it. So they moved to the reservation. Everyone's unhappy. What happens now? Right? Well, like the police said, I mean, that really depends on Alicia. You know, as of this recording, there has not been a physical reuniting with her mother, Jessica. They did speak over FaceTime on July 23rd at the police station. But, you know, everything will be done sort of when and if Alicia is ready. Or if she even wants to do it, you know. It's going to be on her time and her schedule. You know, if she wants to call her mom or, you know, meet with her in person, that's entirely up to her. She is a legal adult. Jose Santiago, a police spokesman, said that Alicia was very apologetic about what she had put her mother through. She understands that she has caused a lot of pain to her mother and that it was unintentional on her behalf. But Alicia is hopeful that they can have a relationship, right? And just sort of start to, to rebuild what was really broken down, right? When she left in 2019. One thing, though, I don't understand, and I'm not shaming, okay? I just, I don't understand. It's why her mother didn't jump on a plane immediately and go see her child that she had spent four years doing everything she could to find. Now, I know that Alicia is an adult now, but, you know, personally, I would have jumped on a plane immediately and made the trip. And if she didn't want to see me, then okay. 
but I want her to know I made the trip, right? I tried. I love you. It's fine. I want to be where you are, and I came to see you. So, you know, I don't know. I would just want that my guests to know I made the effort. And honestly, I probably would have done it more than once. But, you know, that's just me, right? I can also see where Jessica is probably so worried about losing her again by being maybe too pushy. And she is letting Alicia, you know, make those moves as she's ready. You know, she just found her. I'm sure she doesn't want to risk overwhelming her and sending her running back into hiding. So, you know, I I do understand that mindset as well. Now, spokesman Jose described the very emotional moment of Alicia getting to speak with her mother, Jessica. He said it was extremely overwhelming for everyone involved including the detectives. Now, I can't imagine the absolute roller coaster of emotions that came with that FaceTime call. Another Glendale police spokesman or spokesperson, Gina Wynn, said that there have been a number of inquiries regarding Alicia's reunification with her family. Now, as you can imagine, this has been an emotional event for all involved. And with that, we will not be releasing specific details surrounding the reunification and we're going to allow Alicia and her family to discuss the circumstances if they choose to do so. Gina also added that the police are requesting the public to be respectful of Alicia's privacy and the privacy of her family. You know, but the reappearance of a missing child or person, you know, it absolutely captivated the country. Everybody was curious, you know, surrounding the details of how the last four years had gone. Especially, how did she get to Montana? Why did she leave? And who the fuck was Eddie Davis, right? And what was his part in this? And why has she not seen her mother yet? And the general public, like, could not get enough information about this case. To the point that it became, you know, uh, pretty dangerous in some ways. So in a Facebook video shortly after Alicia's reappearance, Jessica thanked her followers for their support over the years, and asked for privacy as the investigation unfolds. Now that we know Alicia is alive, I have to ask one more favor of you. I want you, I know you want answers, and I do too, but the public search for answers has taken a turn for the dangerous. I have been harassed. My family has been attacked all over the internet. The public has gone from trying to help Alicia to doing things like showing up at her house and putting her safety in jeopardy, which is unbelievable. So Jessica said, I beg you, please, no more TikToks, no more reaching out to Alicia or to me with your speculations or questions or assumptions. This is not a movie. 
This is our life. Now, I can say that I definitely saw this behavior on a very, very small scale. I had made a video on TikTok about the FBI raid and that it was being reported that Tuesday they had moved out of their apartment. And someone commented, and I mean commented aggressively and excessively, that it was in fact Monday night that they started moving out. And she knows that because she had traveled to Montana. They had managed to find Alicia and Eddie's apartment. And they had camped out, kind of stalking this building outside, I guess, to see if she could catch anything. And, you know, she had attached this video showing the address and their specific apartment under every comment. Like, it was incredibly odd. It made me uncomfortable. And honestly, it was disturbing. So I did report it to TikTok and it blocked her. So I cannot imagine everything that they had to deal with. You know, in my opinion, it's one thing to maybe report from a distance. You know, for four years, this was a very public case. And it involved public people and emotions, you know, during volunteer searches. You know, people were seeing flyers. They were helping to hand out the flyers. They were sharing her story on social media platforms, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on. So it made sense that people felt, you know, a part of this case. But going to people's houses, threatening, harassing, camping outside, you know, a very young and in all probability a very traumatized 18-year-old girl's house or even approaching her, to me that's absolutely insane. And it's incredibly scary and unbelievably violating. Jessica did acknowledge, though, and express her gratitude to the people who have supported her since her daughter went missing in 2019, saying, I could never have kept going without all of your love, support, help, and well wishes. I can't even put into words the amount of gratitude I have for you all. Now, Alicia's birthday just passed on the 20th of September, and that saw Alicia turning 19. So in honor of her daughter's birthday, Jessica posted a message to Alicia on her social media platforms, and it read, Happy birthday. I know this message will be seen, and I just want to say that I love you and will always be here. I remember today I gave birth to a special baby that I love with all my heart and always will. We are connected always. Five years of birthdays, celebrating at heart like I always do. I will light a candle for you. Now seeing that, you know, and, and reading the message makes me think that she might not be in contact with Alicia or regular contact. And Trent Steele commented on a reunion between mother and daughter. He said, you know, she has not been able to. She's going to have to wait and see how this plays out, just like everyone else. But Steele thinks that it's just a matter of time 
before they are able to finally get some answers. We are still putting this puzzle together. But for now, the investigation remains active and police are requesting time and patience as they peel away the layers of the last four years. And really, that's all I have as far as details for this case. But I did have a few questions, you know, slash observations that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. You know, one, if she ran away and she was being groomed online, right? Was she with him the whole four years? Because to me, what it sounds like, because of the sightings in the park, you know, was she groomed online? I don't know. Who was the guy in the park? Like, why was she in the park for five days and then she disappeared? You know, the guy in the park clearly is not Eddie Davis. So was Alicia trafficked or sold out of state and then somehow she got with Eddie? You know, how did they end up meeting? And honestly, why hasn't he been arrested? Because even if he's not the one that helped her run away, you know, she had been with him at least, you know, the two years that people could say from Walmart and, you know, the neighbor. And she was still a minor at that time. So would it not still be illegal? I mean, I don't know what the age of consent is in Montana, I guess. So maybe not. So I just, I don't understand the connection between her running away and being at the park and then ending up with Eddie Davis in Montana. And I and we might not never know, you know, they might not ever tell us. They could just keep the details private. I don't know. I do think though that eventually at some point there will be an arrest in her case. I just don't know who. And that is all for today. If you made it this far, you are awesome, and I thank you for joining me. Every Monday, I post a Mystery Monday episode that focuses on a missing person or unsolved case. Every other Saturday, I post an episode that focuses on a solved case where we go through, you know, the details of a case, the investigation, and, you know, the court and legal process and the verdicts. Sometimes there are appeals to go through. And the first of every month is a History's Mysteries episode where I focus on an event from history that may or may not be solved. So a new episode just came out on the 1982 Chicago Tylenol murders. That is an unsolved case. So be sure to give me a follow so you don't miss an episode. Like, share, comment, give me a rating, all that. I'm just starting out, so it would help me out a ton, and I would appreciate it so much. Thank you again. I will talk with you soon, and have a wonderful day.